0: I'm Jeffrey Wright, and you're listening to Mission Daily. Selected as best of 2018 by Apple, Mission Daily is the number one podcast
1: for accelerated learning.
0: Hey everyone, what's up? This is Chad, and we have an exciting roster of guests for you this week on the past, present, and future. So today's guest is Jeffrey Miller, Jeffrey is an evolutionary psychologist. He's best known for his books, The Mating Mind, Mating Intelligence, Spent, and Mate. He holds a BA in biology and psychology from Columbia University and a PhD in cognitive psychology from Stanford University. So Jeffrey is one of my favorite evolutionary psychologists, and that list isn't long, but it's a very important list. So why should we be concerned about evolutionary psychology? Well, because getting here to the present moment has been really, really tough, and there are a number of biases and weird quirks that humans have developed that it's important for everyone to understand. So in this conversation with Jeffrey, we talk about a wide range of topics, and I think it's going to be valuable for anyone who wants to take a conscious look at how they can improve their own life. So stay tuned. This interview is awesome, and please welcome Jeffrey Miller. Jeffrey, how you doing? Hey, Chad. How are you? Awesome. Yeah, so we're trying something new. Bear with me here, where we, we start recording right out of the gate. So we're recording now, and a couple of the interviews we've done, the kind of like pre-interview banner has been, it's had some of the best content and best stories. So I have to uh, capture more of that and get it in the interview. So how are you doing today?
1: Oh, pretty good. Let me get my uh, game face on here.
0: Yeah, t- take your time. Uh, are you in New Mexico now or where are you based? Yeah, I'm, I'm
1: Albuquerque mostly. Um, I travel quite a bit because there ain't a whole lot going on here uh, <laughs> apart from ski season. But right. um, I live really close, like six minutes from the airport by design, so I can escape if I need to.
0: Yeah, very smart. We're close to San Jose airport and uh, SFO. So it's, uh, yeah, it's really nice to be able to get away sometimes because, uh, yeah, Silicon Valley can get old very fast. But it's also great.
1: Yeah, I was at Stanford for five years, but Silicon Valley oh, was awesome. quite, a, quite a different place in you know, the, late, the late 80s.
0: Yeah, you were here at the per, a pretty cool time. I, yeah, I was actually in grad
1: school when, you know, Sergi Brin et al were kind of inventing Google and I kind of regret not swapping over <laughs> to computer science because I actually worked quite a bit on machine learning in grad school. Very became a yeah. proper psychologist, so.
0: Yeah. I was listening to some interviews and you were talking about how you were in the machine learning community about like 20 years ago or so. And what was that community like back then? So I'm, I'm familiar with some uh, pretty critical research and pretty critical takes on AI in terms of where it's at. So like Herbert Dreyfus and other people like that. But how did you come up in the field and what were you studying back then? <sighs>
1: So I did start my PhD in cognitive psychology, and I was really interested in how the mind worked and how we learn and categorize and make inferences and all of that, and also visual perception because my my PhD supervisor, Roger Shepard, was really into that. And then I got interested in evolutionary psychology, which is trying to understand human nature by thinking about how evolution shaped us to have certain psychological adaptations and emotions and preferences and all of that. But I thought it's going to be hard to convince mainstream psychologists that evolution matters if we don't have some computational models of how all that could actually work. So I I got into machine learning in this kind of roundabout way that I thought it would be intellectually compelling if we could get an evolutionary process to produce a complicated mind or at least a simple mind in a kind of machine test bed to kind of or, illustrate, or
0: just a mind to help us and just augment our intelligence, yeah,
1: right. Or just a like, mind to do like better. So I got into these kinds of machine learning tools called genetic algorithms, which actually literally simulate the evolutionary process, and neural networks, which are still used under the guise of deep learning in in a lot of AI applications. And my first papers were actually trying to combine the genetic algorithm evolution part with the neural network learning part to see if they could kind of mesh. And I spent way too much time in grad school doing that and programming and crashing the Stanford systems because these were incredibly, you know, computationally intensive things to to run at that point. And and basically, since then, you've got much faster computers, much bigger data sets, much deeper networks, but the basic concepts haven't really changed that much between what we were doing back then and what DeepMind in London is doing now with, with their sort of go playing. And, and now I guess they can beat you know, the world's best StarCraft players in, in video games.
0: <laughs> so with all that there, there that you just mentioned, is it possible for our current state of computing to effectively model chaos or account for randomness? Or is the future... Is reality always going to outrun our apprehensions or when we get to quantum computing, are we going to be able to model evolutionary processes much better?
1: Once you get quantum computing, I think all bets are off. Like I think machine learning would be completely different and we, it's kind of hard to imagine what the methods would be. That would be, you know, as big a step forward as kind of going from the abacus to current computers. And I don't know enough about it to really say much very intelligently. I do think though that I've thought quite a bit about randomness and unpredictability as a sort of adaptive strategy. Like if you're playing a game against any rivals, then you wanna be hard to predict. And that's an insight that goes all the way back to Sun Tzu and sort of basic military strategy. So once you get AIs that are able to try to anticipate each other's behaviors, then you're gonna get an arms race Mm -hmm. of prediction versus unpredictability. And humans will kind of get caught up in that, I don't know what will happen. But you know, one of the major applications of intelligence throughout the history of life on Earth is, is trying to model and anticipate what other minds are doing. And once you've got, got AI in the mix, then both the prediction abilities, but also you know, the capacity to be radically unpredictable increases hugely.
0: In the marketplace or in the career field or the fields of entrepreneurship, I feel like being unpredictable, that's like the holy grail in a sense, being rational yet also unpredictable. That's the whole name of the game in business, right? That's what strategy is. Uh, I know you've done a lot of consulting with different Fortune 500 companies and folks like that. What's the most exciting thing that you're able to share about how you work with those companies or how you like to apply your research? I think
1: what a lot of companies don't get is how much of a cultural bubble they are in terms of the ideological, political, and religious beliefs of the people running the companies and especially doing the marketing and doing the advertising and the market research. So often when I work with companies, I have to kind of remind them that there's variation in human personality traits, and the personality traits that marketers have don't necessarily match those that their consumers have. So there is always a little bit of a stretch for kind of, highly extroverted highly open minded marketers to understand that oh a lot of our consumers aren't like you they're introverted they're antisocial they're not that open to new ideas they're traditionalist also you got a lot of, a lot of market researchers who are pretty far left politically but they're trying to sell laundry detergent or cars to middle america so they're caught between sort of they want to virtue signal politically to their peer group, you know, and get the ad campaign awards and get status within this little bubble. But that's not necessarily in the shareholder's interests or the company's interests or the consumer's interests. So I think just reminding them of this, that mismatch that everybody wants to be ideologically accepted by your peer group. But in business, you have to look beyond that and you have to kind of calibrate yourself to who am i really trying to deliver value to you know all the stakeholders the employees the consumers your supply chain your investors even Mm -hmm. not pissing off your regulators and government
0: so we have a podcast called marketing trends our network of podcasts is growing really rapidly and we talk with cmos on that podcast and it's uh very insightful and exciting because one of the trends that I've seen in even like living in an area like Silicon Valley that is many people would think of as being hyper-leftist is it feels like people are reaching a point now where they're exhausted completely by politics and where they're very open to the idea that solutions in the future are not going to be political. They're all going to be technological or more rational in a sense of how do we do more with less and how do we come together Do you feel like people are getting exhausted about politics and they're ready to put it aside or do you feel like we're still in a bull market for politics and it's just going to keep running?
1: I think there's a split. I think there's a lot a lot of the smartest people I I know and respect are feeling very post-political and they're feeling like exactly what you said, that the best innovations are coming from private enterprise, they're coming from new social and moral movements like effective altruism, they're coming from- people who are able to kind of hack culture and technology in a way that does a complete end run around any traditional political debates or positioning or partisanship. But on the other hand, a lot of us have to live in a highly politicized world like in academia, where there's still a lot of important battles to be fought. And they kind of have to be fought using some of the traditional conceptual tools from politics, like the concept of free speech, or the concept of more generally freedom of conscience or freedom of religion or freedom to believe what what you really believe.
0: And so you brought up effective altruism there, and we'll get into that in a moment. So in one of the interviews I was listening to that you did, you have a really interesting quote and I'll read it here. One thing that makes me emotionally optimistic about America is that the same adults who are being completely insane to each other about politics on Twitter are watching this really sophisticated and emotionally insightful series on Netflix. And so I'm paraphrasing a little bit there, but that's what makes me hopeful as well. Because we have so much focus, emphasis, and resources being devoted to good storytelling, I feel like we're approaching a point where we can have a shared narrative or a shared story about the future that people can agree on. And this is, uh, this is really exciting. And movements like Effective Altruism and others, they're creating this new narrative. So how do you view what's going on with storytelling? And then maybe we can get into effective altruism. I
1: think if you look at the stuff that's really popular on TV, high quality, long form drama, Game of Thrones, Westworld, Billions, whatever, the amount of subtlety and complexity and the nuances of of character and conflict and how they're all depicted is incredibly rich psychologically. And I think if you go back and you look at, what was being televised in like 1970s sitcoms. It's almost unwatchably stupid and simplistic and so dumbed down compared to right. what people can tolerate now. And yet there's this disconnect where we all act like kind of IQ 90 toddlers in the political realm, and we act like IQ 135 viewers in the Netflix realm. And it's, it's really weird that we can't... Agreed seem to reconcile how much sophistication we can deal with in these these fictional worlds versus how simplistic and dumb and hackneyed and partisan the kind of solutions we discuss in the political realm are.
0: Do you feel like that is because, I don't know if you're a fan of McLuhan or if you've studied his work, but he was a big proponent of the idea that we're still trapped in a text-based linear culture in a sense, and it's limited our thinking. So when we're able to see new examples of behavior or examples that allow us to emotionally identify with characters on the screen and accept or integrate pieces of our psyche, is that going to move us out of the traps of language and into a more perfect logos or something along those lines?
1: I I think so. I've been giving quite a bit of thought lately to what would be the best way to promote your ideas if if let's say you're an academic like me and you have a great new scientific insight or even just a study that you want to promote? Okay, it's great to do the peer-reviewed journal publication as the kind of archival version of your story. But to actually reach people and get people to know about your your study, it's kind of insane not to have a YouTube channel. And to be active on Twitter and not to release little videos where you, you explain, here's the idea, here's what we did, here's the subjects, the methods, the analysis, the results, etc. So one example is, like, I'm really proud of the fact that my work has whatever, like 12,000 citations in Google Scholar, which means maybe almost 3,000 people have actually read papers <laughs> that I've, I've written. And then you go on Joe Rogan and a million people see it.
0: When the average paper has, what, six citations or, so, or something? or it's very sp- the,
1: the, the modal number of citations is zero. Like most okay, wow. papers never get cited. The average is something like one or two. So if you publish a paper and it's like getting 100 citations, which means maybe 30 people actually read it, you're doing pretty well. But the scale of what you can reach in terms of social media and particularly the visual appeal of being able to see... A researcher talking directly to camera about what they do, it, it, it means there's this generational, huge generation gap where most academics over the age of 35 or 40 have no idea how visual culture is becoming. And they can't imagine, how could I use Instagram to, to do science? And then a lot of the young people kind of understand how visual culture is really, really important. But if they go to do a PhD, they're going to get socialized in this text-based system that McLuhan was critiquing. And they'll kind of lose all of their Gen Z intuitions about how to reach people. Right. I think that would be terrible.
0: Yeah, because I mean, just in the act of getting on video, you're able to communicate so many different social cues and it's not research anymore. It's a person who has discovered something. It feels way more exciting. How have you seen your classes and your students kind of shift as they enter a world of social media? How has that changed from your perception?
1: Well, one thing is if you're lecturing, you really have to raise your game in terms of being entertaining because if the students are used to watching a lot of YouTube content that is produced pretty professionally with good lighting and good editing and people who are high energy and have actually kind of scripted what they're going to say, you cannot just roll in and give a 90 minute lecture about, you know, Hebbian learning and synapses and whatever and expect to, to rivet their attention. So, you know, 50 years ago, a college lecture was one of the more electrifying things you could see compared to the alternative media. Now you're one of the least interesting things that most Gen Z students could possibly be looking at. And that's an issue. You also have to learn how to integrate your class material into the social media ecosystem that they live in Mm -hmm. for most of their lives. And the striking thing is I can no longer rely on just assuming that the students have seen like the most popular movies of the last year. There's a fragmentation of culture so that you have to keep up with like, who the hell is PewDiePie and why are they watching him? And, you know, who is actually grabbing their attention? Because there's a temptation if you're kind of a middle-aged professor to go, well, I've heard of this Marvel Cinematic Universe, so I'll just throw in a bunch of (laughs) Thor references in my lectures and the students will get it. Some will, but a lot won't.
0: So is this a pull towards populism or, I mean, in a sense, it's not really that. It's just, it's a pull and demand for personalization. And can that, can professors really personalize a lecture to 30 or 50 students or however many are in your classes?
1: I think it's really hard to do that because there's a, there's a fragmentation of culture and the riches are in the niches and every student has their own little passion that they're following on YouTube and Instagram. And, and it's harder to find common ground than when we had three national broadcast TV networks and a handful of weekly news magazines. Now, what's the common ground? You just have to um, become familiar with a whole bunch of really weird little net <laughs> subcultures that your students might be into. So my girlfriend made me watch a lot of uh, makeup tutorials. So now I, kn- I know who the big YouTube makeup stars like Jeffree Star are. And you go like, what is this ASMR stuff that people are listening to? Where you know, people are whispering and like making sound effects. So Gen Z is into that. So I guess I have to learn about that. So I think it requires a lot of mental and cultural flexibility to to sort of, for my generation to stay meaningfully engaged with the twenty year olds that we're that we're teaching.
0: That does not sound easy to say the least. So we we brought up effective altruism earlier. If you're at a party or if you're having a conversation with someone and they ask you, "What is effective altruism? How do you talk about it?"
1: I would say effective altruism is just using reason and evidence to try to do the most good that you can in the world, and particularly trying to think imaginatively about who, who could be affected by what you're doing, how many humans, how many non-human animals, what kinds of sentient beings now and in the future, including the far future might be affected. So it's trying to take a big picture look at what do you do with your life that's meaningful and that's altruistic.
0: I, I feel like there's a growing number of people who are starting to think, much more critically about the devices, the technology that they use. Where do the rare earth minerals come from? How are they won? How are they acquired? The same thing with sentient beings, starting there's a lot of people that are interested in, you know, the idea of how much pain do different animals feel at certain points in their life. Is effective altruism reaching a tipping point or how, how big do you think the community is as a whole?
1: I would say at the moment there's globally a few thousand people who I'd had who would identify as effective altruists and would be sort of hardcore active members of the community who would go to the EA global meetings, participate in the online EA forum, have read you know the basic introductory books by Will McCaskill and Peter Singer, Peter Singer. and really understand the basic foundations of it. It's an interesting movement because they've thought quite a lot about strategies of movement building specifically how fast do we want to grow as a movement do we want to go broad and popular or do we want to stay kind of an elite movement that's very consistent with its principles and very smart and analytical and kind of works a little bit behind the scenes i think so far they've kind of opted for the kind of slightly behind the scenes elitist approach but I think it's actually quite useful for more people to have at least heard of the ideas and kind of, kind, of, kind of resonate with them and, and maybe get some of those EA tools to sort of analyze other issues like political issues. And yeah. That's one reason I'm teaching a course on the psychology of effective altruism, because I think even for undergrads, it can be good to expose them to
0: this kind of thinking. And for everyone that's listening, that hears the word elitist, so I would I would push back a little bit on that. I would say it's a maybe a movement with a very high barrier to entry. Let's just think about it like that, where the amount of credentials or you know proof of your work that you're asked to show if you're going to be taken seriously in the movement is uh, is pretty high. And in a sense, it feels like a uh, a pretty meritocratic movement where people are looking for what are you doing, not what, what are you saying or what you're signaling. Do you think that's the case or is there just a lot of signaling going on right now?
1: I think it's a very, very meritocratic movement in the sense that you can come from anywhere regardless of your credentials, your education. If you show that you really understand the concepts and you're committed to doing the most good in your own life, like you take the giving pledge and you say, I'm gonna give at least 10% of my income to an evidence-based charity or you put in the work in doing the the movement building for effective altruism. People are very, very welcoming and supportive. And it's an amazing social network of very smart, dedicated young people who are determined to to change the world. But it is a big barrier to entry because a lot of the concepts are pretty pretty counterintuitive. Uh, For example, the idea that the scope of what you're affecting matters. The number of lives you affect matters is very counterintuitive to the human brain. We care a lot about vivid stories about saving this one person or you know, these dozen people trapped in a cave in Thailand or whatever. And the fact that we've been able to reduce malaria deaths by millions per year over the last 20 years doesn't really grab people's attention. And, and so EA is a movement of people who do resonate to numbers, like anything in scientific notation really means something to them. And they think a lot about the far future, where are post-humans going to be in a hundred or a thousand years? How are we going to colonize the galaxy, et cetera? And, and that is all very far from the concerns of, you know, most ordinary Americans who are worried about my marriage kind of sucks. And where's my next mortgage payment coming from?
0: Right. And when you're talking about it, or maybe in your course, when you're talking with students about the movement, are there any thought experiments that you present or studies that you immediately go to when you're trying to expand their ability to empathize with, say, like, you know the 150 individuals in their lives to the couple thousand or millions of people they could affect which what are your go-to kind of studies or thought experiments
1: some of them have to do with just expanding the the moral circle from humans to non-humans and actually looking at the numbers of animals that suffer in various different kinds of factory farming so the intuitive approach for example to becoming a vegetarian is people will go oh i should give up red meat and then maybe at some future point give up chicken and fish well The advantage of eating cows is you can kill a cow and and eat it for six months. There's a lot of meat on a cow. Uh, The problem with eating a chicken is chickens are little, so you have to eat like 100 chickens per cow to get the same meat. And chickens are surprisingly not that much dumber than cows, and they suffer a lot more in their conditions than most pastured cows suffer in their lives. So I sort of try to start debates with students like, If you had to convince your relatives to give up beef or chicken from an ethical viewpoint, what should you promote? And most of them eventually come around to the view that, well, they should actually eat more beef and less chicken.
0: So not too long ago, when it came to meat, the people that wanted meat were forced to become like be face to face with the animal and either kill it or butcher it. And now they're separated by so many different people in a supply chain where they don't have to do much at all. And in a sense, so many people have inherited this technology of factory farming and things. And we all know that people who inherit wealth, they're often not the best type of people. So we have all this inherited wealth with our food supply around us. What are some more ways that people can start to to think and ask better questions about uh, where their food comes from and what were the costs that went into it?
1: I think there's been an interesting shift in the effective altruism movement lately, the last five years, where... It used to be everybody was vegan and everyone was convinced that that sooner or later everybody else would become vegan and that meat eating would go the way of slavery. It would literally be as embarrassing in in 20 years to say I ever ate meat as it would have been in 1870 to say, oh yeah, I own slaves. But but with lab-grown meat and the possibility of growing beef, pork, fish, anything you want in labs without having to grow the rest of the animal you know, the brain that can suffer, there's been kind of a shift where people are like, this is one of these problems that's going to be kind of technologically self-correcting. Like the factory farming is going to move from growing whole animals to growing exactly the same meat using the same DNA, but without the suffering. And there's a great new book called The End of Factory Farming by J.C. Reese that talks about this shift. This would have been a problem five years ago when you would have thought we need a political solution, like maybe we need to pass laws against factory farming. But where now all these little startup companies seem to be solving the how do we eat meat problem you know, without suffering, probably without much government intervention and without even having to change people's
0: political attitudes very much. So... Let's play uh, devil's advocate here, and let me put on my uh, Nassim Taleb or Michael Crichton hat. So I would say those two individuals are pretty paranoid about the idea that scientists will destroy the world. So people who are messing around in genomics or who are very carefully going about creating new biological, whether it's lab-grown meat or anything like that, are you familiar with the precautionary principle? Or how do you view the risks of doing these, uh, these completely new experiments in lab-grown meat and things like that.
1: I'm not nearly as worried about those risks as I am about other existential risks.
0: It's it's important to prioritize what <laughs> what the big risks are.
1: It's really important to prioritize your existential risks. For example, sure. to realize you know the risk of a massive asteroid impact destroying life on Earth, it's significant. And if it happened, it would be bad. But the chance of it happening per generation is extremely low. So it's prudent to sort of think about, well, how could we defend against that? But thousands of times more dangerous is, is still the risk of nuclear war and nuclear winter. Definitely. Or likewise, if you want to worry about effects of genetic engineering, worry about terrorist cells using genetic engineering to create bioweapons to create pandemics. That's a much bigger risk, I think, than, ooh, something accidentally going wrong with lab-grown meat.
0: I completely agree. And that brings us to a really interesting subject, which is existential risks and threats. Uh, It's something I'm very interested in and uh, have studied quite a bit. When you encounter this subject, it's very easy to get a little bit into it and then retreat, because it's so overwhelming. And you can feel like, "I, I can't do anything, or if I study this too much, I'm going to become paranoid and uh, become ineffective at my daily life. So is there any uh, maybe protocol or way you advise students to study this without getting overwhelmed? And uh, so where they don't tap out completely and say, screw this, I'm uh, just going to go do my thing at Coachella.
1: It can be really overwhelming. And when I have my students read essays, like ones by Nick Bostrom that are like, Every second that we delay colonizing the galaxy means that like 10 to the 15th sentient beings that could have come into existence won't, and that's on us. That's a crushing, crushing burden to shoulder, and it it can be pretty paralyzing to think really deeply about that. But on the other hand, I try to kind of borrow a few uh, archetypes from the way that people think about storytelling, like the archetype of the hero. Well, confronting existential risks is the part of the hero's journey where you go deep, deep underground and you confront death and failure and misery, and then you have to kind of come back up into the light somehow. I think if you don't have that experience in a serious way, at least once during college, you're not really getting a higher education. And I think at the moment, confronting existential risks within an EA context is the best possible way to do that kind of hero's journey. Coming out the other side means you just have to find a way to contribute meaningfully to reducing those X risks somehow. And that might mean you figure out, okay, I want to go work for SpaceX, and I want to help Elon Musk develop a multiplanetary society. Or you might figure out, I'm going to switch from campaigning for some social justice cause to campaigning for nuclear disarmament because nuclear winter is going to be bad news for minorities and LGBTQ people as well as for everybody else. So it's kind of about reprioritizing what you care about politically. It can also be about uh, changing your career trajectory a little bit to figure out what skills and passions can I cultivate that will actually help reduce these X risks.
0: Yeah, I think existential risks are really they're the call to adventure in our modern times. And what's so exciting about them for for me is that there's something that there's something very tangible that each of us can do to start working to fix them today. And whatever existential risk you're looking at, there are already groups of people who are working quite hard. Many of them have their own money in the game. They've taken enormous amounts of money from investors and are obligated to turn it into a financial reward. So there are all these highly motivated groups that people can join. And I think you've said something along the lines that, you know, it's not the uh, survival of the fittest, it's the survival of the most creative. Could you talk a little bit about that and maybe how you would advise people who are empathetic and creative, how do they get involved with solving these existential risks? What's the best way for them to go about exploring and then working to solve them?
1: The three things that... Effective altruism really focuses on when sort of asking, what should we work on? What How do we do, quote, cause selection? Like, how do we prioritize our efforts? Are How big is the scope of the problem? All the existential risks are the biggest possible scope, because existential is about do we survive or not? How tractable is the problem? Can we actually do anything about it? We don't have a, a good ability yet to control whether there's a nearby supernova that that blasts all with a gamma ray burst and extinguishes all life on earth. It could happen in the next second, but we can't do much about it. Not tractable. And then third, neglectedness. How many people are, are working on the problem? Is it on you know the public's radar or is it something where we need a lot more effort and attention to it? So when I talk to my students about this, I say, look, global warming is happening. It is man-made. It's an issue. But there are a lot of ways to solve it. And it's not a a neglected problem. There are tens of thousands of smart people thinking about global warming, arguing about policy. And and it's also tricky because it's highly politicized. So the thing to do is to find an issue that's not yet very politicized, that is neglected, that is potentially tractable, and that's huge in scope. And if you can do that, you're a hero. You're doing awesome work.
0: And that's where there's going to be meaning. And I feel like so many people are looking for deeper, uh, because what most people consider to be friendship these days is, uh, I mean, it's, it's not really friendship, I think. People are looking for fellowship and camaraderie and people they can work together with for decades, in a sense, and trust in the existential risk community or people that are working on companies and things I found a lot of people who are just incredible. they're they're anomalies. They're unique. they're they're different. they're exciting. I mean, to me, that's the biggest draw, and that's the biggest selling point is you're going to find meaningful relationships and friendships inside these movements. Have you felt like you found or made better friendships in the effective altruism community where you feel you know more valued and where you feel like you can be more emotionally available with with people? or what's your experience been?
1: Yeah, it's been amazing. It's a shared sense of mission and meaning and ethics counts for a lot. So if you go to your jujitsu studio, you get a big sense of bonding with the guys you roll with and like combat sports is great for that, but there's no higher mission than just kind of getting better at that thing. If you join a little cult that has shared values and sort of believes in a mission that can be hugely emotionally rewarding, but you're all in a shared delusion and you kind of know it. I think the great thing about effective altruism is you have that combination of the kind of emotional resonance of a, of a religious cult where you're all on the same page ethically, but you have all the intelligence and rationality and skepticism and intense, intense intellectual discussions that happen in kind of the best college seminars. So to me, it's, it's a wonderful community society movement because it's both very emotionally and ethically fulfilling, but it's also very intellectually stimulating.
0: So when it comes to your teaching, you mentioned that you're teaching a class now, is that the most exciting thing that you're working on? Is it, is it one of them? How's the class going? And yeah, let's start there.
1: Um, the class is great because there's just a lot of good readings out there about effective altruism, and we cover quite a bit on existential risk. We cover animal welfare, but we also cover issues like career choice because these are kids who are typically juniors and seniors in college. They're thinking, what do I do next? Do I go get a PhD and try to get tenure? Do I go work for a nonprofit for $18,000 a year? You know, What, what do I do? And so we talk quite a bit about how do you find the best match between your your talents, your interests, your passions, and your future? Who do you want to become? Who do you want to turn yourself into? And one thing I've noticed, particularly among the young men, is there's a lot more willingness to think about those issues, basically because of Jordan Peterson. Because so many of them are familiar with his call to excellence, that they're willing to kind of engage with, yeah, I guess I'm sooner or later going to grow up to be an actual man with responsibilities and duties. What kind of man should I become? I think young women didn't have as much of a problem with that. They mature faster and they had, I think they're more future oriented. So that's been interesting to see.
0: And that was something Joseph Campbell talked about where he kind of viewed women as having this proving ritual of menstruation and that they were forced to initiate and view all the suffering of the world much earlier on than men were. And in our society, there really are no more proving rituals for males. I would say there are a couple and the military, so I'm a veteran and the military was an excellent, excellent proving ritual. However, there's some some problems with it, obviously. What do you view as the, the future of Proving rituals, and education. Is education supposed to be a proving ritual? Where is this going to head in the future?
1: I think higher education should be a proving ritual. And I think you should have a sense of the same kind of sense maybe that in the military you get from surviving basic training or even, even Navy SEAL training. Like, God, that was hard. That's the hardest thing I've ever done. I barely survived. I'm proud of myself for getting through it. I think at the moment, a lot of colleges are trying to do the exact opposite. And saying college should be as easy and comfortable and safe as humanly possible. Any intellectual or ethical challenge that you face in it is kind of taboo. And you're a naughty professor for actually making your students rethink their lives in any meaningful way. And I've noticed that the students who are best. The male students who are best, honestly, are the vets. They're the guys who have done a couple tours in Iraq or Afghanistan and then come back to college, and they are 10 times more mature than the 19-year-old guys who have never done anything. So I think it needs to be a proving ritual, and I think confronting existential risk and confronting our responsibility to future generations not to mess things up is, is absolutely central to that.
0: So... Outside of college, and let's jump into your personal life for a second, to the extent you're comfortable doing so. What in your personal life is beyond exciting? Any projects or things that are thrilling for you, where you you feel like the, you know these new discoveries, these new hobbies have brought a ton of life and kind of like revitalized you?
1: I've given quite a bit of thought to the future of long term relationships between people lately. I'm planning a wedding with my girlfriend, Diana Fleischman, who's also in effective altruism and also an evolutionary psychologist. We have a pretty unconventional relationship in many ways that we've talked about elsewhere. And I keep asking myself this basic question, which is what kind of relationships seriously are people going to have in 20 or, or 50 years? Is it going to be still lifelong monogamous vanilla marriage as the kind of default the aspiration for everybody if not that then then what so i'm very excited about trying to puzzle through that it's hard to make predictions but i think american society already has little bits and pieces of what might be combined to form those future relationships it's just that they're kind of siloed in different subcultures at the moment so for example you have a kind of resurgent trad life traditional life pronatalist kind of Christian fundamentalist culture that's all about move to Idaho, you know, have five kids, homeschool them, avoid mainstream American culture, make sure you can survive any uh, global catastrophes that happen. And then on the other hand, you have sort of Bay Area kinky polyamorists who are very experimental and trying to figure out how to have kind of maximum sexual and romantic freedom, but who often aren't that good at figuring out okay, wait, how am I actually going to create a life that leads to grandchildren?
0: Right. And happy, flourishing grandchildren as well, which is, uh, which is a challenge. So you're, uh, you're a father, right? Your daughter, I think, is uh, in her 20s now? Yeah, she's 22. What has that experience been like for you as, as a man raising, raising a daughter? And so I recently, my wife and I had our first child. Grayson's 11 months old, and it's already been one of the best things that, I've, that could have ever happened to me that uh, I would not have predicted would have been so transformative. What was that experience of fatherhood like for you? And do you recommend it to, to young men? Do you, you know, not say anything about it? What do you do?
1: Congratulations, by
0: the way. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah,
1: It's awesome. I, I had a lot of great sources of, of you know, joy and excitement and pleasure in my life, but none of them really compared to the birth of my, first, uh, of my daughter the day that happened was a qualitatively new kind of joy and meaning. And I thought, okay, life now is never going to be the same. It's almost like there was a kind of neurogenetic hormonal reset button that got hit. That's like, Oh, now I'm a dad. Now all these new dad parts of my brain come online that have new concerns that have a longer term perspective that are more protective of, you know, me and my partner and my kid in certain ways. And where I'm also much more concerned about kind of the future of society and the planet than I was before. But it's interesting to raise a kid when you do behavior genetics research, and I've done quite a bit of that, and you're aware of twin research and genes and all that. I love knowing that all behavioral traits are are heritable and aren't much influenced by family environment because it means... If you make good mate choices, your kids will kind of take care of themselves to a large degree, you just like feed them and protect them and water them and like give them a bed to sleep in and they'll kind of grow up okay. On the other hand, if you believe in the blank slate, which means the genes count for nothing and everything is down to the parents, that's a recipe for maximum parental anxiety. So the thing I would say to young men is, learn about behavior genetics, learn to trust your genes, learn that if you make a good choice of mate, your kids will probably turn out okay. And you don't have to wait until your education is done or your career is settled or your life is figured out. Or A hundred years ago, people typically got married and had kids way before they were prepared and then they kind of played catch up and they developed the maturity along with their spouse, to make it work. And now people are like, well, but now I I have to get tenure. I have to get the um, partnership in the law firm before I could even contemplate having kids. No, you don't. I mean, have kids when you want. And I often encourage grad students, have kids in grad school, because it's not like it's going to be easier to have them when you're going up for tenure. So I'm quite pro-natalist in that in that way.
0: It's very interesting. So one of my favorite movies is Interstellar, and you have the dichotomy between Cooper and Dr. Mann, where Dr. Mann doesn't have kids and Cooper does. I feel like having kids is a forcing function for what matters. It expands your imagination, and there are just so many different benefits of that. Uh, I don't know if I'm proselytizing for <laughs> having kids now, but there are many people out there that feel like... I couldn't handle it or it's not something I would be a horrible parent. Is this because so many of us have had kind of like struggles with our own parents? Because so many people in the Bay Area that I'm friends with have kind of pushed off having kids or they view it as a a distraction to accomplishing their goals and everything. Is this a really negative trend? Do we need to get the smartest people in the world to start having kids? Are we going to end up with a idiocracy type situation? How do we get out of this trap?
1: I think it's really important for people to remember that we are all descended from successful parents. I tell this to my evolutionary psychology classes all the time. You are the the result of an unbroken chain of success stories of organisms that managed to survive and reproduce and parent successfully going back 500 million years to the, the origins of vertebrates. You're pretty unlikely to be the weak link in terms of being like uniquely bad, at, at, so bad at parenting that like your kids are all <laughs> failures and, and die. And The enemy we need to fight against, I think, is, is the kind of helicopter parenting, the tiger mothering, the perfectionism, the mindset that says, it's up to me to make sure my kid is smart enough to get into Harvard. Well, guess what? That's not up to you. That's up to your genes and your partner's genes. And there's not a whole lot you can do to influence that. Once you accept that, then you can just focus on allowing your kids' talents to flourish as they will, letting them explore what they want to explore, maximizing the happiness of their life as kids, rather than trying to shape them into being better, more competitive adults, and also making sure you leave time in your own life as a parent that parenting isn't the only thing you do. You need to maintain your relationship with your primary partner and your social life and your friendships and your leisure interests. And if you do that, your kids will have a better role model. They'll respect you more and they'll behave better, frankly.
0: Definitely. And I I can't, probably the worst thing, one of the worst things I can imagine is being a parent and looking back and realizing that so much of your advice to your child was predicated on you know, using your child as a virtue signaling tool, I can't imagine anything worse. And we see that happening a lot. So let's transition over to, as we wrap up all our interviews, I like to see what type of information you've been consuming lately. That's the best way to know who somebody is. So is there a best, you know, nonfiction book and fiction book you've read over the last year or two?
1: The best nonfiction book was probably the most harrowing. It was uh, The Doomsday Machine by Daniel Ellsberg. Kind of an interesting story. I knew Daniel's son, who'd been sort of involved in the manosphere for a while. And he said, hey, do you want to stay with my parents next time you're in Berkeley? And I was like, who are your parents? I had no idea. So Daniel and his wife very kindly put me up for a couple of days in their house up in the hills above Berkeley. And I was like, oh, wait, this is the guy who did the Pentagon Papers. And when I first like, walked up to the house, he was like on his elliptical doing his exercises and Sharp as attack, and we talked for a long time about his his experience at Rand Corporation and and nuclear strategy. And he said, "Oh, I've got this new book out about my my experiences of trying to prevent nuclear war and planning nuclear strategy." So I read that and I thought, "Oh my God, I had trusted that the U.S. government knew what they were doing." Oh, you know, okay. since the '40s in terms of trying to keep us safe. The military plans for nuclear war were incredibly simplistic and unresponsive to you know the specifics of what the threats were and there's so many times we just barely made it just barely scraped through and avoided nuclear war and that was a real wake up call to me about here's an existential risk and we've lived with it for two or three generations and we're kind of used to it we take it for granted but It is still the most active threat. It is still the biggest threat. And now it's kind of neglected. But when people talk about global warming, I'm like, the big problem is nuclear winter, not global warming.
0: Completely agree. Especially when we start talking about cybercrime or cyberterrorism, the ability of hackers to influence defense systems is a huge, huge threat.
1: So for nonfiction, that's it. For fiction, I just keep going back to my favorite science fiction author, Ian M. Banks, he sadly died of cancer like, what, 10 years ago. It was one of the only celebrity deaths where I felt a real sense of mourning about, damn it, there's like 10 more books he could have written. But he wrote a lot of books, and I found them really inspirational for, oh, this is what we could achieve if we don't succumb to existential risks. If we make it, if we have the kind of society that's free and awesome and prosperous and diverse and, and galactic. So I found that really
0: inspiring. Yeah, I think people forget that the future can be better than you can even imagine right now. So in my own personal life, if you make even a modest amount of sacrifices and work modestly hard, you can get to a place that's better than you could have imagined five years ago or 10 years ago. So if we think about smartphones and uh, what apps, are there any that you're using or are you trying to stay away from your uh, smartphone?
1: Uh I'm a real Twitter addict. I'm on Twitter way too much. And um, I kind of love it more than I've loved any other app. And I also hate it more than I, I've hated almost any. Like, it's kind of like dating a woman with borderline personality disorder. <laughs> That's Twitter. It's the best of times, the worst of times. Like, if you get into a spat with a famous person and they're just <laughs> a real shit to you, then it's terrible and you get all depressed. And and you might know what I'm referring to.
0: Pretty exhilarating though, at the same time. You know, if
1: I run one of my really silly polls and people just really respond to it and it seems to strike an emotional chord, and particularly if it's about a topic that just people don't really raise in public very much. um, I love that because you have the power to kind of instantly Broaden people's Overton window and say we're allowed to talk about this. We like this is a thing we can include in the public sphere.
0: Completely agree. Uh, when it comes to stories in multimedia forms, are you watching Netflix, HBO? What series are you watching, or what movies have you watched recently that really stood out?
1: I do love good long-form TV drama. I guess my favorite series at the moment have been Billions. I'm kind of looking forward to the next. Season three of that, because the main characters are just so such compelling, kind of dark triad Machiavellian guys, but they're so competent and so smart. And I love seeing extremely smart people depicted credibly in media because in a lot of movies, you get kind of well, here's the evil genius, like whatever Thanos from Avengers Infinity Wars, who's like allegedly one of the smartest people in the galaxies, but who doesn't understand basic like Malthusian population growth and like how carrying capacities work and so forth. I guess I worry a little bit that Hollywood screenwriting and show running and all that is kind of sucking a lot of potential talent <laughs> away from other areas. Like if I was starting out again, would I go into academia at this point? Probably not. I'd go into some kind of just having my own YouTube channel where I rant about stuff, or I'd try to do writing that subtly incorporates effective altruism themes into HBO series, something like that.
0: Sure. So if you had to leave our listeners with one piece of advice or anecdote or a call to adventure, what would that be?
1: I think the key thing is I'm betting that regenerative medicine and longevity treatments come along in our lifetime, maybe not soon enough for me to live for a long time, but probably for you at least. And so we're, we're going to probably meet our great, great grandkids. We're going to have relationships with future generations who are substantially younger than us, like by a couple hundred years. And I think they're going to ask us, so what did you do when you were young? What were your goals? What, you know, how did you make the world better? And I think we need to be prepared to have an answer for that because that could, that could really happen. you know. Wise,
0: wise words. Yeah.
1: We don't want to be the people who are like, oh, I never imagined A, that I would ever live longer despite amazing advances in biotechnology, or B, that I never imagined having kids despite the fact that 80 or 90% of people do have kids. And so I think having that long-term perspective, not just in terms of the state of the world, but we personally might survive quite a long time and be accountable for what we do i think that's both terrifying and inspiring
0: i love it jeffrey this has been awesome thanks so much for being generous with your time and we'll see everybody next time mission daily and all of our podcasts are created with love by our team at mission.org Each morning, you'll get a newsletter that will help you start your morning and your day off right. Hey, listeners, thanks for tuning into this episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. It helps spread the word and I would greatly appreciate it. See you next time.